Okay, please turn with Psalm 37. Psalm 37, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and this will be our last uh, week in Psalm 37, so it's been a good ride. Psalm 37, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. There it says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have an abundance. But the wicked will perish." And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who... Lord, saves and preserves and guards and keeps your people. 
that, Lord, though they stumble, they will not be cast headlong. And, Lord, though they slip, they will not fall because you are the one who holds their hand. Lord, we thank you that you who have begun a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ and that it is impossible for any of your sheep, Lord, any of your children to fall away, for them to be cast headlong, for them to be altogether destroyed like the wicked. Lord, we thank you as well that you are a God of justice and righteousness and that there is a day of judgment coming where all the unbelievers and all the ungodly and profane and the wicked, Lord, where they will get what they deserve and that, Lord, you will repay them according to what they have done. Lord, you will vindicate your people and you will punish your enemies. And so, Father, we pray that as we study this final week on this psalm, Lord, that you would give it into our mind, Lord, that you would build up our faith, Lord, to look and to judge a man not according to the abundance of his possessions, but, Lord, according to his eternal destiny. Lord, that we might avoid the wicked and that we might congregate with the righteous. So, Lord, we pray for you to build us up today in our faith. Lord, help us by faith to see those things that are unseen. Lord, to have convictions of things that have yet to be revealed. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are coming to the end of Psalm 37, and this psalm has taught us to judge a man not by the abundance of his possessions, but by his eternal destiny. This is the key. We must live by faith. We must live not by what our eye sees, but by faith in what will come to be judgment, especially in this present world, when we see the wicked rising to positions of power. When we see them living lives of ease and luxury and comfort and safety, strutting through the earth, terrorizing the earth, oppressing the righteous with no immediate consequence because of their sin. And when we see the righteous suffering afflictions in this life, being treated as the scum of the earth, being led, as it were, as sheep to the slaughter, we must remember, we must believe that there is a God in heaven and that this God in heaven loves justice and righteousness, and that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof to everyone of this by raising him from from the dead. There is a reward for the righteous, and there is punishment and condemnation for the ungodly and for the sinner. And in due time, God will make these things manifest. He will reveal it. He will make this known. It will be evident to all mankind. And while we wait for that day, we must be patient. We must patiently wait for God to act. And while we wait, we must continue living a godly life. That's what the psalm is all about. Wait for the Lord, live a godly life, and know that in the end, God will make all things right. So don't envy the wicked. Do not fret because of these evildoers, but instead wait for the Lord, pursue godliness, and entrust our souls to him who judges justly. And when you judge a man, when you look in this present world, do not regard him according to his possessions in this life, but regard him according to where he will be assigned on the day of judgment. Will he enter into the blessing of the Lord, or will he be accursed and enter into the fires of hell. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 tells us of this same thing. 
9.23. Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Then when I will punish all who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. We should not boast in power, in might, in riches, in wisdom, according to this present world. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, that he knows the Lord, that he has the salvation of God. This is what the prophet is teaching, right, in the psalm, in Psalm 37. And this is what he concludes with, a reminder of the outcome for both the righteous and the wicked. That the faithful might with endurance run the race that is set before them, that the righteous might not grow weary in doing good, that we might persevere until the very end, until we enter into our eternal inheritance. But to do this, we must have faith. We must believe the word of God. We must believe God's declaration concerning the outcome of the righteous and the wicked because their final state has not yet been revealed. It has not yet been manifested in this present world. We have to wait for it. So let's go to Psalm 37, and we'll pick up in verse 35 this morning. Psalm 37, verse 35 and 36 says, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Earlier, the prophet confirmed by his own experience that he has not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. Look back at verse 25. He says, I have been young, now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging for bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. This was a truth that he confirmed, that he confirmed by his own experience. This is what I know to be true. This is what I have seen throughout the course of my life. God does not forsake the righteous. His descendants are not begging for bread. I've seen it when I was young. I've seen it when I am old. Here he confirms another truth that he has witnessed, something that he has seen by his own experience. He has seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. This is what the wicked are like in this present life, in this momentary life. They have temporary prosperity. They enjoy many comforts, great power in this present world, right? This is indeed true. This is true in every generation. Are there not in our own day many wicked, violent men who rise to levels of wealth, power, prestige above their fellow men? They spread themselves broad and wide like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. They enjoy riches, power, honor, even though they are wicked, violent men. And here again, he describes them as a luxuriant tree that grows and spreads in its native soil. The luxuriant tree in its native soil grows strong. It grows tall. It spreads itself abroad so that it towers 
over all of the other trees. This is how it is in this life with the wicked. They increase and they increase and they increase year after year after year. And it seems as if they're going to dominate and take over the whole world. This is the way it appears. This was the case with wicked Haman in Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5 verse 9. Listen to how he is described here. It says, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he did not stand up and tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and for his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons. In every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh his wife and all of his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. There he's recounting to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, every instance where the king had magnified him, how he had been promoted above everyone else. Yet even though he experienced and enjoyed all of this honor, all of this power, right, to be made in this way, he still was not satisfied when this one man would not bow to him. This one insignificant person would not bow to him. He needed more, right? This is as the wicked are. They spread themselves like a luxuriant tree. They have their glory. They have their riches. They have many children. They have much magnification in this life. They are promoted above many others in this present world. Also, Jeremiah chapter 12. This is how the prophet also describes the wicked in his own day. Jeremiah chapter 12. Verse 1. Jeremiah 12, 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. Here, the prophet is wanting to discuss with God a matter of justice a matter of righteousness. God, why is this the case? Why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that those who deal treacherously, why are they at ease? Right, you have planted them. They have taken root. They have grown. They're producing fruit. Right, this is the same as Psalm 37. They're spreading themselves like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. This is the experience of the prophet and of all of the righteous throughout all generations. The wicked, the violent man, he grows strong. Like Haman, he rises above all others. He increases in power and wealth. 
He has a life of ease and luxury. They use their power to harass the innocent, to harass the righteous. And all of this seems to escape the notice of God, right? Momentarily, it does. From our earthly perspective, it does. From our experience, it seems as if God is unconcerned with these things because if God cared, why is he allowing this to happen? But notice what the prophet says in Psalm 37, 36. What happens to him? Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. There, their glory, their riches are temporary. They are a phantom. They are a shadow. They are only for a moment. Right? Whatever the wicked enjoys in this life, however they spread abroad and increase, it is only for a very short season. It is only but for a moment. Though they are intoxicated with their prosperity, and though they are held in high regard by all men, though they are the envy of many men, their happiness is transitory. It is only here one day, and then it is gone the next. Their greatness disappears in but a moment. The wicked, violent man, he dies. The luxuriant tree that spread itself abroad is cut down, and you don't see it anymore, right? It's gone, and it is not there. Even, he says, though I sought for him, I looked for him, I couldn't find him, right? He was gone, he was no more. He is dead, he has left this life, and he has entered into the life to come. He is no longer here to torment the earth, to harass the upright in heart. This is what Job says in Job 20, or what is said in the book of Job. In Job 20, Job 20, verse 4. It says in verse 4 through 9, Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless momentary? Though his loftiness reaches the heavens, and his head touches the cloud, he perishes forever like his refuse. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He flies away like a dream, and they cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no longer, and his place no longer beholds him. There, the triumphing of the wicked is short. It is momentary. Their joy is but for a moment. Even though in their loftiness, he says, they reach the heavens, they even touch the clouds. So great is their might. So great is their loftiness, but they ultimately perish like what? Like their refuse, like their dung. They perish. This is what they are regarded as, as by God. This is what their loftiness is like. And this is what will happen to all wicked and violent men. They will perish like their refuse. Do we envy refuse? Do we want to be like that? No, of course not. So why would we envy them? Why would we fear them? Why would we fret over them seeing that they will soon perish? His glory will be gone. His loftiness will be cut down. God is going to chop him to the ground and he will be no more. Even if we look for him, we're not going to find him. He's not going to be there any longer. Isn't this the case? 
Don't we also know this? Not only from the declaration of Scripture, this is true of our own experience as well, right? We have seen this with our own eyes too, time and time again. Those who exert great influence over society, those who amass great fortunes, these so-called masters of the universe who rule and reign, their life is very short. And one thing is for certain, no matter who it is, no matter how powerful they may have become, in the past, every single one of them will die. They will die. And when they die, they will not take one single penny with them into the life to come. They will take none of their prestige. They will take none of their loftiness. They will take none of their greatness with them into the life to come. Their fortunes, their power, whatever it was that gave them prestige and honor in this life, what gained them an audience amongst this person and that person, they will not have that with them to benefit them in the life to come. It will be of no help and no comfort to them when they stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they answer to Him. They entered this world naked and they will leave this world naked and then they will stand before the Lord. All the wicked, violent people. We have to see this. We must see this by faith. We must, by faith, see the wicked cowering before Jesus Christ, bowing their knee before Him, shaking in their boots before Jesus Christ, answering to Him for every single evil deed they committed on earth, even in the midst of their power, even in the midst of of their loftiness. This is what will happen to every one of them. From Obama, to Pelosi, to Schumer, to Bill Gates, to Jeff Bezos, to George Soros, to Klaus Schwab, to Xi Jinping, whoever it is on the earth right now who is harassing and terrorizing the world, promoting evil, promoting wickedness on the earth, producing whatever they want. Who are we before these people? Nothing but a dead dog, nothing but a, a flea. They don't care about us. But one day, who will they answer to? They will all stand before Christ. And when they stand before Him, they will have nowhere to hide. They will have no money by which to pay a bribe. They will have no favors by which to be given. They will have nothing by which to blackmail Christ to get Him to pervert justice. And they will get strict, righteous justice from Jesus Christ for what they have done. This is the way we have to view it. When we see them strutting throughout the earth, when we see them wreaking havoc on mankind, spreading themselves as a luxuriant tree in its native soil, do not fret, do not envy them. It's not the end of the world. The sky is not falling. It is not doom and gloom. This is how people behave. They have a tendency for doom and gloom. End of the world, everything is falling apart. Well, it may be falling apart in this world, but it's not falling apart according to the will of God and according to the counsel of God, and God's going to make all things right. So put your hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, and He is going to bring it about. And if they are a great tree, then it's just more wood for the fire. They're just going to burn hotter on the day of judgment. God's going to cut them down, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. So don't fret over them. Don't be anxious over them. Don't run around like a chicken with your head cut off 
right? Because you're so terrified of everything that is happening on the earth. Psalm 73, verse 18. Psalm 73, verses 18 to 20. says, Surely... You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Surely you set them on slippery places. And when they slip, they're going to be cast down to their own destruction. God's not holding their hand. That's what he said earlier about the righteous, right? When the righteous man, when he stumbles, he doesn't fall because God holds his hand. But here, God is the one putting them on a slippery place, and he's not holding their hand. And when they slip, what are they going to do? They're going to fall to their own ruin and destruction. So why would we fret over them, and why would we be envious of those who are about to fall and slip right into hell? There's no reason for us to envy them. Instead, who should we be taking notice of? Verse 37. Psalm 37, 37. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. The prophet tells us here, mark the blameless man. Right? Behold the upright man. Right? The man of peace. Right? This is the righteous man, the believer, the man of faith, the child of God. All of these are different ways of describing the same person. Here, the man of faith, the believer, is called the blameless man, the upright man, meaning the man who is living a godly life, pursuing righteousness, keeping the commandments of God because of what God has done to him in verse 31. Remember verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The law of God is in his heart. And as a result of the law of God being in his heart, verse 27 will be true of him. Depart from evil and do good. He has God's law in his heart. And as a result of the law on the heart, he departs from evil and does good. And then as a result of this, his life is defined as being a life of blamelessness, of innocence. He is an upright man. This is the way that he is described. Now, of course, he doesn't mean he's a perfect man. He doesn't mean that he never sins. But as a whole, his life is defined by being blameless and by being upright. And we can be identified in this way. Not only can we be identified in this way, we better be identified in this way because if we are not blameless and upright, then we don't have a future. We don't have a future with God. We better be blameless and we better be living an upright life because if not, then we have no hope. We have no hope. Let's see this. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. This is the way that Noah is described in his own generation. Now again, we know that Noah is not a perfect man. He's not been received the full manifestation of his salvation. But is there a difference in the way that Noah lives in contrast to the way everyone else is living, to the way that the wicked world is living? 
And the answer is yes, of course, there has to be. How can there not be when he has the law of God on his heart and they don't? Of course he's going to live differently. He has the Holy Spirit within him and they do not. So how is he described? These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a blameless man. Noah walked with God in contrast to the rest of the world who are wicked men, who are not blameless but have much blame and guilt, and who don't walk with God. That's the difference between Noah and the world. Also, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Notice how Job is described. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So notice there, Job, the way he is described, how his life is defined, is blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Right? This because of what God had done to him. Because of the miracle of regeneration. Of course, he doesn't mean that Job did that on his own or he did it through his own strength, but he's showing the fruit. This is the fruit of this man's life as a result of what God has done in his heart and how God has changed him. Well, this is what has to be true of us. If God has done the same miracle in us, then what the miracle produced in Noah and what the miracle produced in Job will be produced in us as well. We must be defined as being blameless and upright. And in contrast, in comparison to the world, this is how we should live. Blamelessly and upright, not like this present world. We cannot say that only the prophets were blameless. We cannot say that only the apostles were upright. Or that, well, there's some super Christians and they can attain to this status, but the common average Christian, he won't be defined in this way. That he won't be blameless and upright. But no, this isn't the case at all. This is the expectation for all Christians, for the common Christian to live an upright and a blameless life. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, notice here the apostle expects this, same designation for the whole church. Not just for himself or not just for a select few within the church, but he's writing to all of them and this is what he expects of all of the believers, all of those who claim the name of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. There, he wants them to 
work out their salvation with fear and trembling, which means advance, progress in your salvation. So again, he can't mean perfection because if they're still working out their salvation with fear and trembling, it, it assumes and entails that they still have work to do, right? that they still are advancing and progressing in the Christian life. However, he wants them to prove themselves to be blameless, to be innocent, to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In contrast to the world, we should be blameless, innocent, above reproach. We should be like lights in the world in comparison to the darkness that is all around. And here he's addressing the church, all of them, not some of them, all of them, and he's addressing us. How are we to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? What does God require of us? That we be blameless, that we be innocent, that we be children above reproach. And this is necessary because only they have a future with God. Only they will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is why the prophet says to mark them. Mark the blameless. Mark the upright. Mark the man of peace. By mark, he means find them, identify them, right? Those who are blameless, those who are upright, and attach yourself to these people, right? Take note of them, see how they live, and follow their example. The blameless and the upright. The life that they live, even when it leads to suffering, is a life without shame and without regret, What truly righteous man has ever concluded his life and says, I wish I would have committed more sins against God? What person at the end of his life says, I wish I would have lived in more sin and done more sinful things? I wish I would have taught my children how to sin more. I wish I would have not taken them to church and instead taking them to the ball fields on Sunday. What righteous person thinks in this way? No one does. The only regret a righteous man has is that he committed any sins against God. He wishes that he would have lived a more godly life, that he would have done more to serve the Lord. But when the righteous man comes to the end, he is not filled with regret and remorse and with shame. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 4. Notice how the apostle, is there any hint of regret or trepidation in his voice? though he's about to be put to death and about to stand before the Lord. Notice what he says. Though his life was filled with sufferings and hardships, with many difficulties, is he regretting the way that he's lived? No. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There he has fought the fight, finished the course, kept the faith. No regret, no remorse, but only longing for the future reward, right? What it is that God will give him. And this is the way it should be with all of the righteous. So we need to mark the blameless and the upright. 
we must attach ourselves to them and we must follow their example. As it says in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He says, follow my example and find other people who are walking in the same pattern that you have in us and follow them as well. This is what we need to be doing. Isn't this what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about? Hebrews chapter 11 is setting before us an entire list of people, many examples of the faithful who have endured to the end so that we will see their example and that we will follow in their footsteps. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by faith by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there were born even of one man and him as good as dead, at that as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac shall your descendants be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Isn't that what he's doing here? He even tells us, we have a great cloud of witnesses. They've surrounded us, so what should we do? The same thing that they did. Right, Lay aside every encumbrance, lay aside the sin that easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. And the race before us is the same race that they had to run. They ran it, they endured, they persevered, so why not us? Why can't we do those things? We can with the help of the Lord in the same way that they did. Mark these men and women. They are examples set before us. And our ultimate example is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fix your eye upon him and fix your eye upon those who walk in the same way that he walked. Look at the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And notice what it says. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to identify with these people. Well, do we want God to be ashamed of us on the day of judgment? Do we want God to be ashamed to identify with us? Of course not. So then what should we do? Be like them. Mark the blameless, behold the upright, and walk in the same way that they walked. Have the faith that they had. Live the way that they live. Endure in the same way that they endured. 
See the outcome of their faith. See the reward that God has bestowed upon them, even though their life was filled with turmoil, with misery, with sufferings, with hardships, and with many afflictions. Men who went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering here and there, living in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. Have any of us had to do that? Are we living in holes in the ground, running for our lives, destitute, wandering here and there as nomads with no place to call our home? So we haven't suffered nearly as much as they had, but they endured, so why can't we? Why can't we endure? These are people who would have been regarded as the most miserable creatures on earth, as those completely forsaken by God, but God had not forsaken them. Instead, God delighted in them. God designated them as those whom the world was not worthy. The world is not even worthy to have these people living on it. They are so precious in the sight of God. And he's not ashamed to be called their God. And Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call them his brothers. No, he will gladly do so. And he has a reward awaiting them. And they will not be perfected apart from us. We will enter into that reward together on the day of resurrection. This is what we must see. There is a future for the man of peace. The reward that awaits the blameless and the upright. Even when their circumstances are miserable, God has not forsaken them, and God will in due time exalt them. So mark the blameless, behold the upright, and follow their example. Live the way they live. Then verse 38. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Just as we mark the blameless and the upright, so we must also take notice and mark the transgressors and the wicked. And notice here, how is he describing these people? He's not describing them as the rich and famous. He's not calling them millionaires and billionaires, right? He's not calling them the upper class. He's not calling them the sophisticated, the elites of society. He's designating them according to their spiritual condition and according to their eternal destiny. They are transgressors. They are wicked. This is who they are in the sight of God. Not according to their prosperity. This is the problem people have. They want the lifestyle of the rich and famous. But we can't see them as the rich and famous. We have to see them as the wicked. The wicked rich and famous. And we have to see what their outcome will be. Why would we envy these people? People don't look at them correctly. But we have to see them according to what they truly are. Pull back the facade. Pull back the illusion and see what these people truly are in the sight of God. And what God considers them are transgressors and wicked people. Mark them and see and know that they are going to be altogether destroyed. They have no future with God. Again, notice that. They will be altogether destroyed. Not partially destroyed. Not they'll go to purgatory for a million years and then they'll get out and they'll go to heaven. That's not the way it works. 
but rather they will be altogether destroyed for all eternity. God will utterly, completely destroy the wicked. And if we identify and associate with them, he'll do the same thing to us. So why would we want to be with them? Why would we want to be allotted amongst the wicked? Why would we want to live like them? Why would we envy them? Why do we fear them, seeing that God one day is going to altogether, completely, utterly destroy them? We should never do those things. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. They are stubble. And what is God in comparison to stubble? They are compared in the Bible to stubble, to chaff, to dry wood. And notice how God is described. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrifying thing. Why? Because those who fall into his hands are stubble, they are chaff, they are dry wood, and God is a furious fire that will consume the adversaries. He is a raging fire, and when raging fire meets dry wood, what happens to dry wood? It is completely and utterly consumed. He will consume his adversaries. God's adversaries will be altogether destroyed. They will be consumed by the wrath of God Almighty, and no one can deliver them from the hands of God. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? 1 Samuel 2, 25. And just as we have examples in the Bible of the righteous and how God protected them, how God delivered them, how God safely ushered them into his heavenly kingdom, so we also have many examples in the Bible of wicked men who momentarily had success, momentarily they had power and riches, but ultimately they were brought to ruin and destruction by the Lord. So we need to mark the righteous, see the outcome, follow in their footsteps, and then we need to mark the unrighteous, see the outcome for them, and avoid it at all costs. Do not join in them with doing evil. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 17. Hebrews 12, 14. It says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and sanctification with which, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. 
that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There, he says, don't be like who? Esau. Esau is the example. Don't be immoral and godless like Esau. Because if you are, you will have the same fate as Esau. You will be destroyed just as Esau was destroyed. A couple of pages over. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So here, Cain is the example. He's saying, don't be like Cain. right? Don't be like Cain, because if you are, then you will be judged in the same way that Cain was judged. And then a few pages over, Jude. Jude verse 5. Jude verse 5 says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Then notice verse 11. Woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here in these three passages, we have Esau, we have Cain, we have the entire wilderness generation. We have the fallen angels. You have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Balaam. You have Korah. And in all of these, we know what happened to them. All of them were transgressors of the Lord. All of them were wicked, violent men. And they were destroyed. They perished before the Lord. They will suffer in the fires of hell for all eternity. We see people in the Bible like Ahab and Jezebel, who had a very long life, who had a long reign, who on, for many years committed great evils against God, who amassed fortunes, who had wealth, who had power. Yet in the end, they had miserable deaths. And now they are in hell for all eternity. Wasn't Ahab at random struck with an arrow and he died there on the battlefield? and the dogs came and licked his blood? Wasn't wicked Jezebel thrown out of a tower by her own servants, and she fell on her head and died, and then was trampled by horses, and then the dogs came and ate her body so that there was only left her hands and her head? Who wants to die like that? No one does. Well, if you live like her, then that's what you'll get. Maybe not in this life, but for sure in the life to come. Those who follow them in wickedness, those who desire evil as they did, they will have the same outcome as them. Just as it is with the wicked in ancient times, so it will be with the wicked in our own time. Transgressors will be altogether destroyed. 
the posterity of the wicked will be cut off. They do not have a future with God. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in evil desire. It says in Psalm 52, verse 7. Psalm 37, 39. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. This is why ultimately the righteous cannot be moved or shaken. Their salvation is not dependent on the strength of man. They did not begin it, and they're not the ones that will bring it to completion. God is the author of their salvation, and God is the finisher and perfecter of their salvation. Our salvation is not dependent on the strength of man. Not on our strength, not on the strength of any other, but on the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And it ultimately depends upon the mighty power of God. And this is why the righteous will never be shaken. This is why they will not fall headlong. He is our strength in time of trouble. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who has the power to overcome God? Who has the power to keep God from doing what he wants to do? And God's purpose is to save the righteous then who can stop him? Who can thwart him from his plans and purposes? No one can stop God from doing. Satan cannot stop him. His demons cannot stop him. No wicked man can stop God from doing what he wants to do. This is why the apostle says so confidently, so boldly. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6. God is the one who began the good work of salvation and his purpose is to complete it and no one can stop him from giving salvation to his children. Full, final salvation to his children. And how many sheep will Jesus lose? Not one single sheep. He will not lose one of those who has been given to him by the Father because it is not dependent on them but rather on the power of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 gives us this full assurance of faith. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he doesn't mean that we won't have any enemies. Of course we'll have enemies. But who can be against us to our ultimate ruin and destruction? Who can be against us to triumph over us so that we go to hell? No one can do that because God is the one who is fighting for us. So even if the wicked rule the day, even if they use their power to harass and torment the righteous, it is only for a moment. They cannot and will not have ultimate victory because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It says Psalm 46 verse 1. And even in the midst of their raging, they can't separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. They can make our life miserable. They might make our life uncomfortable. They might confiscate all of our goods. They might throw us in prison. They might even take our life away. But they can never take salvation from us. They cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Can they go take the law of God out of our heart? Does any man have the power to do that? Can they go take the Holy Spirit out of us and take him away from us? Can they pry us out of the hands of God? No, it's impossible according to John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus is the one who gives us eternal life. God does, and no man can take us out of the hands of God. It says in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 30. There he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. No one. No one is able to. No one has the power to take the elect the sheep away from Christ, to steal even one of them. And that's why he says, the salvation of the righteous, it comes from the Lord. And what can man do, right? How can he stop them or not deliver them in the time of trouble? God will do it. God will ultimately do it. Then verse 40, Psalm 37, verse 40. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. In the end, God will deliver his people from all harm. He will save them from the wicked and from ruthless men. Those who make God their refuge, they will not be disappointed. In the end, God will arise. He will come to their aid. He will deliver them from all of their enemies and from every evil thing. So what can a man do to us? If God is our refuge then what can an evil man do to us? How can they triumph over us? It's impossible. The only way is if there exists in this universe, in this world, some power greater and mightier than God. But that's impossible because he's God Almighty. He is the Almighty God. All power, all might, all authority belongs to him. And God uses his mighty power for the salvation and for the benefit of his people. Right for our good, to deliver us from all harm. So even if the wicked are ranting and raving in this present world, and they do this, we know that they do this, we know for certain that if God delays, it is for our good. It is for our testing, and it is only for a moment. And we know that even in that moment of testing, 
God will not let our feet fall. He won't let us stumble. He won't let our faith fail during the fiery trial. And we know in due time, in just a little while, God will arouse himself. He will rise and he will grant victory over all of our enemies. We will, in the end, have victory over the world, the flesh, the devil, over sin, and over death. And while we wait, we must live by faith. My righteous one shall live by his faith. We have to be like David, who said, You come to me with sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. 1 Samuel 17, 45. When the enemies come around, this is the way that we have to be. You may come to me with your lies, with your deceit, with your vile words, with your persecutions, right? with your violence. Right? This is what you want to do. But ultimately, I come against you in the name of the Lord. And God's going to give me the victory over you, even if you might have some temporary victory in this life. Or what about Elisha when he comforted his servant with these words? Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 2 Kings 6, 16. Is that not true for us as well? Aren't those with us more than those that are with them? We have God on our side. He's the trump card of all trump cards, right? Who can overcome God? No one. But not only is God on our side, we also have myriads of angels, mighty angels, God's holy angels who are on our side as well, and they will fight for us in the power of God. So we have to be like David. We have to be like Elisha. We must believe the words of Psalm 37. Do we believe in the God of the Bible? Do we believe that God loves his people? Do we believe that God will reward his people? Do we believe that God will deliver them from all of their enemies? Do we believe that God will punish the wicked? If we believe these things, then why would we fret over evildoers? And why would we be envious of wrongdoers? They are soon going to wither and fade. They're, going, they're like the grass. They are going to fade. They are like the green herb. It will fade away. What is so often lacking is we have weak faith. Oh, you of little faith. It is our faith that is lacking. But we must be strong in faith. We must build up our faith in the presence of all enemies. One last passage, Psalm 50, Psalm, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 13. Isaiah 51, verse 12. And notice again here, God is rebuking them for how foolish it is. How foolish would you fear man when I am the one who's on your side? Isaiah 51.12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? God is the one who comforts us. So why would we be afraid of a man who dies? A man who is like grass. But when we fear men, 
we're forgetting who our God is. We're not living by faith in who God is. He's the one who stretched out the heavens. Did any man on this earth do that? Did Bill Gates stretch out the heavens? Did Jeff Bezos lay the foundations of the earth? Were any of them there when that happened? No, but who was there? Who did do it? The Lord God did. And who's on our side? The Lord is. That's why Elisha said, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And this is what we have to remember. To keep us from being sinfully anxious, from fretting over evildoers, and from envying wrongdoers, so that we will persevere through this life, through every evil, through every wickedness, through the many tribulations, and enter into the kingdom of God. This is what we must do. We must wait for the Lord. We must be patient during the day of testing and continue entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly. And while we wait for God to reward us and to give us the full outcome of our salvation, how should we live? Depart from evil and do good. Live a godly and a righteous life, an upright and a blameless life in this present world. So let's commit our way to the Lord and let's pursue righteousness and let's wait on the Lord and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you for, Lord, your word and and how it so accurately describes, Lord, what we experience every single day. Lord, what we see in this present world. Lord, so that we are not wandering about in the dark as blind men groping here and there. Lord, we see clearly because of what your word tells us. And Lord, we know that you are on your throne and that if you are for us, who can be against us? That Lord, you will give salvation to your people. That the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. That Lord, you are our help in time of trouble. Lord, we know as well that transgressors, will be altogether destroyed, that you will cut them off, that they have no future at all. And yet, Lord, though we know these things are true, though they have been so clearly taught to us in your word, Lord, we so often find ourselves as those who have little faith, Lord, who have weak faith. And Lord, we become anxious, we begin to fret, Lord, we look at what's happening in the world and we think that everything is going to end and that you are uh, somehow not in control of what's going on and that everyone is going to triumph over us. Lord, keep us from this sinful attitude, Lord, from these sinful thoughts. And Lord, we pray that you would give us strong faith, Lord, that we would be able by faith to, Lord, look as from a watchtower, Lord, into the distance, Lord, into the future, Lord, and see every day the day of judgment coming. Behold it by faith. Lord, see your enemies, Lord, receiving what they deserve. Lord, to see your people, Lord, receiving the reward that you bestow upon them. Lord, that we might not envy the evil and we might not fret over them. Lord, that we also at the same time might mark the upright and the blameless, And Lord, imitate their faith and walk in the manner in which they walked. So Lord, we pray that you would use this word that we have heard. Lord, this psalm that we have studied. 
Lord, to grant to your people perseverance. Lord, so that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would persevere in this life. And while we wait for you, Lord, to act on our behalf, Lord, that you would cause us to walk in your ways, to depart from evil, to do good, Lord, to speak justice and righteousness and wisdom, Lord, in this present generation. So, Lord, we pray that you would do a work within us and that our life would conform to the truths of your word and that, Lord, we would walk in the pathway of righteousness. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon any man, Lord, not upon our strength nor the strength of any other, but rather it is dependent on you. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to bring to completion, Lord, the work that you have started within us and that you would cause us to advance in regards to our salvation, Lord, until we reach the full and final measure of it on the day when we see Christ face to face. So Lord, help us in these things. Lord, watch over us, protect us. Lord, preserve your people. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.